Hello from Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Busy week. No time to fritter away here because we've got a lot to get to from the debates, from the fact-checking, and a lot of other news this week. But I think we probably need to start the week in review by going back even a little bit to last week, the Friday night debate between... State Superintendent Sherry Barra and challenger Cindy Wilson, we were both there. We were both on the panel. A lot to unwrap from that hour-long debate. A lively debate, certainly, Kevin. The candidates mixed it up. They went back and forth on the issues. Uh, They went back and forth with each other a number of times. I think there was a lot of... It was a testy debate in a lot of of steps along the way. I think that there was a lot of interest and excitement heading into the debate because it was really the first state, the first time that these two got on the stage and mixed it up on the issues in front of a statewide audience. We Mm -hmm. do know now that there is one more uh, debate coming in late October, but this is really the only. This was broadcast statewide on Idaho Public Television, uh, as well as is online, and and so this really had the biggest audience. And um, a lot of anticipation going into it. And I think it lived up to any, you know, hype that we had Mm -hmm. in our minds and and right from the beginning. Yeah, um, I mean, I I guess going back, I mean, we talked, you know, we talked about how the first time we saw these two candidates on the same stage was back in August. mm -hmm. It was the Idaho Association of School Administrators annual conference. And I thought that was a fairly cordial exchange. I mean, both of the candidates kind of made their points and... uh, made their pitches to a room full of educators and administrators, but it seemed like they were, you know, I wouldn't say on their best behavior necessarily or trying to, you know, but I think with that audience, with a very specialized and very knowledgeable audience, I think both candidates were being very careful to, you know, come across as fellow educators and and really kind of playing that, playing that up and, and not really mixing it up as much, but very different tone Friday night uh, when these two candidates were uh, reaching out to a statewide audience, not just educators, but uh, but parents and uh, patrons and taxpayers. It, it felt really different. I mean, a front row seat. You and I were both on the panel uh, Friday night as Cindy Wilson and Sherry Ibarra mixed it up. But there's a number of places that we could start, but the discussion about graduation rates was one area where they really went after each other and, and, and mixed it up, and right? And so the superintendent has repeated this claim throughout the year that graduation rates are up. She even says uh, they're up a smidge and a smooch, uh, but sometimes she's not even that specific, and she'll just go around telling people, hey, our graduation rates are up. Congratulations, way to go. And Cindy Wilson really took exception to this, didn't she, mm-hmm. Kevin? Because we've talked about, you've done the math before. Right, and I wanted to make sure that we drilled down to those numbers some in the debate because uh, Superintendent Ibarra brought up the increase in graduation rates twice before I asked her about it. And I wanted to kind of walk the audience through the numbers because I think the numbers are really important. I mean, when we talk about the improvement in graduation rates uh, in in the latest numbers, we're talking about 0.01%. And to, to put that into human terms, that's two graduates out of a class of 20,000 seniors. Most Assuming st- there's no mathematical error. No, I mean, that, this, is, this, is a, this is a minuscule increase, and most statisticians would probably look at those numbers and say, you know, these are essentially flat. 
uh, and, and certainly would not be trumpeting it as an increase. So I, I wanted to kind of ask the question and, and put the numbers into context as we asked that question. But yeah, there, were, there was a pretty uh, tense exchange between the two candidates. Uh, you know, Cindy Wilson saying, you know, we're talking about 4,000 kids who didn't graduate. And, you know, those those kids have names and, you know, pointing out that as a former teacher, you know, high school teacher, she she's worked with kids who are the dealing with, um, you know, are we going to graduate or not? Or, or are they going to persevere through to, to get a diploma? So that was an issue that I think she was uh, trying to score some points on. Yeah, so a very interesting exchange. And, and I should point out, as we talk about these exchanges, not only do we have uh, full coverage uh, stories at idohatnews.org, you can watch the full debate. Yeah. If you missed it, it's still available online. We have a link to it in one of our stories. You can also find it at Idaho PTV. Um, so if you haven't seen it yet, don't worry. And if you're trying to figure out where you stand on this race, uh, take the hour to watch the debate. It's, it's well worth it. It's probably the best chance to figure out the differences between the two candidates uh, and what's most important to them. The graduation rate was one area where they mixed it up. And this and ongoing discussion of school safety school is safety. another area where they really mixed it up. Superintendent Ibarra started out talking about her $20 million Keep Idaho Students Safe plan, her KISS plan, that she'll be going to the legislature and asking for supplemental funding. In January, some $19-plus million in grant programs. Um, and Cindy, this is another opportunity. In her role as challenger, Cindy embraced a chance to go on the offensive and criticize the superintendent for not working before rolling out her plan with the Idaho Office of School Safety and Security and not working with some of these different education groups. Sometimes we refer to them as stakeholders, but mm -hmm. different education groups that are the folks, whether they're administrators or whether they're teachers, they're the folks on the front lines that would have to help implement a, super, uh, a school safety plan and and. and if the worst of the worst happened, would be on the front lines having to respond in an emergency. And, and Cindy Wilson went on the offensive about working together in partnerships and a transparent process, right? Right. I mean, you had, you had Wilson coming after Ibarra about the process behind that uh, school safety plan. Not new. I mean, she's been on the offensive on this issue really over the past couple of months. You know, accusing Abara of working in a vacuum, coming up with a plan without talking to education groups, and and you've talked to education groups about yeah. this. So, so there's it's there's, not a mystery. It's not a mystery, and it's not debatable that there are education groups who feel like they were left uh, on the outside. Uh, you had Abara talk about how she felt like she had foreshadowed that there was going to be a school safety plan coming, that she had. You know, tipped off. Uh, and we fact checked that, and that checked it, and it's, it's no. I'm sorry. It, it, it didn't pass the fact check for me because what she talked about at JFAC and earlier was more of a plan focused on bullying. Now, now bullying and school safety, there's definitely an overlap between the two issues. I would never suggest otherwise. But what she talked about in JFAC was a plan. She called it a war on bullying. She's kind of walked back. The rhetoric about war on bullying. She sort of corrected on, herself, yeah. Right. Well, she's she's talked back the, the language of you know a war on anything because she wanted to go with something that's less uh, confrontational. But the point is, what she talked about in January was 
was bullying and not school safety. She didn't mention the KISS name. She didn't mention anything about coming to the legislature with a supplemental for nearly $20 million in grant proposals. She didn't mention uh, grants and training for, for every school building or a crisis communications officer. So it is deeply misleading for the superintendent to say that she went to JFAC and laid this all out uh, during the 2018 legislative session. We listened and again. Prepared. We were there at the time, and we listened again this week to our presentation, and it, it doesn't pass the smell test. Right, no, it, and it was one of those things where we really did have to re-listen because, you know, as we covered that budget presentation back in January, nothing really stuck in my brain about her talking about a school safety plan or a bullying plan. It because was such guess a, what? It was, she didn't. Right, and, and even her reference to a war on bullying was, was a fairly passing reference, so... We really had to go back and listen. But, you know, by the same token, uh, what I thought interesting in that whole exchange about school safety, I wanted to try to get a better sense uh, from Cindy Wilson of what would a school safety plan look like from her? Who would be in charge and what would it cost? And she asserted that she believes this can be a no-cost option because it's all going to be done under the Office of School Safety and Security. I'm not sure how you get to no cost. I mean, if you're doing something... There's almost inherently going to be some kind of a cost attached. She, she mentioned a new federal grant that we had reported on about two weeks ago to launch a school safety tip line. She mentioned that. But I mean, well, certainly... It's a very limited grant. It's right. for a tip line. It's not for uh, training or for staffing in the schools. I mean, it's it's... I mean, it's going to help create a tip line, and that's what the money is there for. It's not going to do an, you know, a full-fledged school safety plan. No. So... I don't know if she was thinking about the work that the Office of School Safety is already doing with its audits and school security assessments. That work is ongoing, but certainly they're being funded through the Office of the, the, Office of the Division of Building Safety. Certainly this is not a, a pro bono outfit that is doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. I mean, uh, they are state employees, and, and there's a, a funding request every year for this office. And so it is not true that um, that there's a no-cost school safety plan out there. I don't know if she was thinking of no cost in terms of no additional new right, state spending, right. no additional new line items. But certainly the work uh, of the Office of School Safety is not being performed for free. And even the grant... Uh, yeah, I believe it came from the Department of Justice, but... It's you know, a federal grant, if I'm remembering right. It, it's a federal grant, and it's coming from tax dollars somewhere. So it's not free um, in the sense that, you know, you, in, in the sense that you, what you would think of is free. And so it's not free, but... but, but, uh, but no, and, and let's shift to another exchange in this debate. It feels like we're going backwards in time. We're going from stuff that happened later in the debate to the middle of the debate. But I wanted to... Uh, kind of get your takeaways from the start of the debate and the first line of questioning, which, which you took the lead on. And it goes back to that meet and greet uh, in Eagle. Uh, it goes back to the Dan Goykachia story from a year ago. Um, you asked the questions of Superintendent Ibarra. You know, what did she say and what was kind of your takeaway? Yeah, all? and so you mentioned the meet and greet. That was an event just two weeks ago. It was one week exactly before the debate that we were talking about, but where the superintendent kicked off her re-election campaign at a bar at an event hosted by a former educator whose teaching certificate was suspended indefinitely by the state amid multiple very serious sexual yeah, harassment allegations. Complaints. I mean, these were not, you know, these were not pedestrian, I, yeah. uh, maybe a misunderstanding. I mean, if, no. if, if, if what happened 
if what what was alleged really happened, I mean, there's no mistaking the the, the overtone of of what he what he said, if indeed that's what he did. And he never challenged these allegations. Never, it may have been never challenged. Yeah. But it's not about him. Superintendent Ybarra is the one running for office. You know, we did ask that first. We wanted to get the debate uh, off and, and rolling. And, and so I think that uh, that put the superintendent on the offensive, uh, or at least was acting defensive at yes. the, at the yeah. beginning. And was trying to kind of deflect away and say, we're here to talk about Right. She said, we're not here to talk about seven-year-old issues. We're not here to talk about personnel matters. And I think it is absolutely germane uh, to the debate yeah, sure. because, you know, while he may have had his certificate suspended seven years ago, it was two weeks ago that the superintendent partnered up with him and stood by his side at a major campaign event. Um, but also we talked about the Dan Goykachia situation mm -hmm. from uh, a summer ago uh, where Superintendent Ibarra hired in a very prominent position at the State Department of Education a man named Dan Goykachia who had been investigated and terminated by the State Controller's Office after, yeah, I mean, this went to a tort claim. After I mean, an, an allegation of sexual harassment, superintendent hired him immediately, and I asked her whether whether it was that she didn't do her due diligence to find out about the reason he was terminated or whether she didn't care. And again, she kind of um, brushed it off, said, as soon as I found out, I took the most appropriate response, but hey, this isn't about personnel matters. But I, I think it is. Well, and what I found interesting... You know, when you drill right down to it, was that she said that she acted swiftly uh, when she heard about the Dan Goykachia complaints, when she heard about the tort claim in the controller's office. Now, back when this all happened, um, Goykachia resigned, or that was the word we got from the State right. Department of Education, was that he resigned. Now, for Abar to say that she acted swiftly makes you wonder, was it a resignation that she encouraged? Uh, was it not really a resignation at all? We'll never know the, the full answer. Because there was that. a newspaper article that came out about the claim. Right, right. I mean, just as the short claim became public, uh, Goykachia left the Department of Education very abruptly. There's no question about that. It was very quick. It was, and it was never really fully explained at the time. So I, I was a little bit struck by her saying that she acted, uh, which makes it sound that this makes it sound like the resignation wasn't completely uh, voluntary or, or, you know, entirely of Goykachia's volition. But anyway, lied in that debate. Yeah, I think <laughs> there's lied in still that some debate. unanswered questions. I think Superintendent Ibarra, you know, she started off defensive, uh, in a defensive stance, talking about the sexual harassment uh, issues of the men that were in her orbit with sexual harassment accusations against them. She started off sort of in a defensive position, and, and I think her body language reflected that throughout much of the debate. But she did go on the offensive as well, and she tried to paint her opponent, Cindy Wilson, as someone who's inexperienced and uninformed. Right, right. There were instances where she really tried to dress down Wilson and say, you know, you're, you're, you're not right about the roles here on school safety. You and it turns out you fact-checked that, and the superintendent well, was actually it, wrong. It's, it's definitely, there's room to say that Office of School Safety and Security has a, a role beyond buildings. And For it, sure, it mentions people, yeah, it I mentions mean, kids. It's a statement of purpose in the legislation. So so there's that. Um, she, Ibarra, took a, a swipe at uh, Wilson when Wilson, I think, was trying to mention, refer, refer to Matt McCarter in the State Department of Education. She said MacArthur, so she, you know, she got the name wrong. 
And uh, Ibarra did not let that pass and said, I don't know who you're talking about with Mr. MacArthur. So, you know, it, and I think that's emblematic of a debate where, you know, both candidates were trying to score points. And, you know, at, at some points it was it was pretty testy. It was pretty chippy. One thing I want to talk about just at the end real quick, because it was something that the cameras didn't catch. And it was kind of one of those behind the scenes moments. But uh, at the very end of the debate, uh, after an hour uh, Cindy Wilson came over and shook hands with the journalists on the panel, you and me, spoke to the moderator, Melissa Davlin, posed for a couple of photos. It's almost routine. It's almost like the handshake after the Super Bowl or whatever. Uh, so Cindy Wilson did that. On the other hand, Superintendent Ibarra made a beeline out the door. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was and, pretty telling. And it wasn't just us. I, I don't think she uh, really uh, mingled with anybody in the audience or anybody with public TV who wasn't... Uh, on the panel or you know, the moderator. I mean, it was, you know, it, it was fairly... She was ready to go. It was noticeable <laughs> that she wanted to, uh, you know, get out of there um, for, for whatever reason. But uh, anyway, you can look at our coverage of the debate, uh, you know, look at some of her fact check that came out of the debate, and watch the debate in full. Yeah, yeah, those fact check articles, especially if you want any of that extra coverage, head over to the homepage, www.idahoednews.org. Scroll back to last Saturday for coverage of the lively debate itself. That was your analysis piece. Mm -hmm. And then on Monday and Tuesday, we had some fact-checking of the endorsement claims and some fact-checking of the Office of School Safety and JFAC claims. But that was not the only big debate uh, (laughs) this week. They're coming fast and furious. Kevin, you really followed the governor's debate uh, closely. And this is such an interesting race between Lieutenant Governor Brad Little, the Republican nominee, and uh, former state representative Paulette Jordan, the Democratic nominee. That was also an interesting debate on Monday night, wasn't it? It it was very, very interesting and very far-reaching. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, if you're a voter, if you're trying to figure out kind of where you are on this race, it's worth your while if you haven't already watched the debate to catch it online and and spend the hour watching it because uh, the candidates... uh, sparred on issues such as Medicaid and Medicaid expansion. They went into immigration issues and the role of you know, the state in immigration policy. Um, interesting exchanges there. Uh, the tone of the debate you know, here again was a case where one of the candidates was put on the spot right away. Uh, Paula Jordan had to Answer and maybe not fully answer questions about she her. Didn't. <laughs> well, yeah, um, uh, about, you don't uh, need to be charitable here. No, no let, let, let's not mince words. Uh, she was pretty evasive on questions about uh, some of her uh, fundraising activity, but you can see all of that. But as I watched the debate afterwards, I was struck by the amount of time that was spent on education and the number of claims and counterclaims between the two candidates. So my job Tuesday morning, I felt, was... You were busy. (laughs) Let's drill down on education here. Let's try to do some fact-checking about what the candidates said about education. And and what I found, kind of a mixed bag. I mean, there were points where uh, Brad Little was right and the numbers back him up. Yeah. And there were points uh, where Paula Jordan was right and, you know, the numbers back her up. Yeah, she was really trying... She was on this kick with Idaho's 50th and everything, suggesting that, you know, nothing has worked under the Little Otter administration, trying to score points by associating Brad Little with uh, outgoing Governor Butch Otter, and the two of them obviously have been allies for years and years and and years. And 50th in everything is an overstatement, but there are cases and places where Idaho is at near the bottom. for instance, Um, yeah. You know, when Education Week did its uh, annual rankings of the state's, 
uh, ranked Idaho dead last in terms of school finance, and that's you know that's getting into spending and percentage of uh, you know you know GDP that's spent or you know percentage of available revenue that goes into education. I, I think is the way they word it. Per pupil spending, Idaho is at or near the bottom. Uh, it kind of flip flops between uh, Idaho and Utah at, at the the dead bottom of that, those rankings. So there are metrics where Idaho ranks at or near the bottom. Not everyone, but there right. are definitely some. I thought um, and pointed out that she was right when she talked about um, uh, teacher salaries are not keeping pace with the rest of the nation, even with the career ladder and even with the increases in in, in teacher salary. Idaho salaries are not keeping up with what's happening at the national level when you look back a few years. Now, Little was right when he talked about pay raises. And, and this comes down to how you slice up the statistics and where you put the goalposts. But they were both right. Paulette talking about we're not keeping pace with our neighboring states. But Brad's saying, you know, hey, if you look at the last four years and if you look at Idaho's education spending as a function of the entire state budget, we're coming out on top here. So they're talking about the same issue, funding it's, and then specifically teacher pay. But the way you present it and where you put the goalposts really colors how you perceive it, it, where we are. You got it. It's, it's where, you, where you look in time. If you look in that one-year window and you look at the 3.6% increase in teacher salaries, that is tops in the nation. Brad Little is right about that. And, and those numbers are not coming from a Republican think tank. They're right. coming from the National Education Association, not not usually an ally of uh, Republican political causes. But so that's correct. But Jordan is also correct because that same study looked at the numbers over the course of nine years and found that Idaho's increases did not keep pace. So, you know, it's all how you slice it. Uh, there were some exchanges about ACT scores uh, uh, Brad Little talked about how Idaho's ACT scores eclipse every other state in, in the West, I mean, or all of our neighboring states. The neighboring states, yeah. And he's right. Uh, we've looked at those numbers. We've reported those numbers in the past. We kind of re-reported them again in our fact check. And he is right, but very important to note that a small fraction of Idaho students take the ACT. Something like 36%. Yeah, barely a third of, yeah. of Idaho's graduates take the ACT because most kids are taking the SAT for free. So the ACT sample is really small. These are kids who are most likely going to college, maybe going, trying to get into selective colleges. They are taking the ACT because they have to in a lot of cases right. to satisfy an admission requirement for perhaps a very selective school. So it stands to reason Idaho's ACT scores would be, would be higher than neighboring states where in some cases... Every kid's taking the ACT. It's yeah. required. Right. And I think it's important to point out that the SAT, as you mentioned, is Idaho's college entrance exam of choice to the tune of taxpayers paying $1 million each year to allow our high school juniors to take the SAT test. And by the way, we will have new SAT numbers Works. as early as late next week. We're expecting maybe some SAT numbers next week. So, yeah, while Little was accurate in talking about the ACT scores, it's a little bit it's a little bit convenient to hitch your, your wagon to the ACT scores when you when the state has consciously made the SAT uh, its college entrance exam of choice, and those SAT scores are much more representative of the student performance as a whole. So, and then and state leaders have talked about why the SAT works for us, and that's because most of our uh, in-state and regionally uh, regional institutions. Uh, use the SAT. It's something that our taxpayers are paying for. So it's very much the test of choice 
for Idaho, whereas a lot of the kids taking the ACT, yes, those numbers are, are accurate that Brad cited, but those are elite students trying to get into competitive out-of-state or private institutions, and so it's a little bit different kettle of fish. But that was a great debate on Monday. You can also watch that on Idaho Public Television's website. You can go check out uh, your fact-checking at idahoednews.org. I thought our panel on the superintendent's debate on Friday was great. I thought another good panel on Monday night uh, with Cynthia yeah. Sewell from the Idaho Statesman and Morgan Boydston from KTVB, two of the reporters who have really followed that governor's race closely. Um, I thought that was a, a great panel. Yeah, it was a really good panel. They, they, they nailed it. They had some great questions, and really all across the board. So like I say, you, you can read our fact check story and, and drill down on education. I think we uh, covered a lot of ground there. But really, if you want the full picture, uh, you should watch the full debate. It's, it's a good one. Yeah, it, it was a good one, and, and I appreciate uh, your fact check. But yeah, public television has done a great job with yeah. a number of debates. Two that stand out to me are the state superintendent and the governor's race. No, it's, it's been a good run. We talked about ACT scores in the the, cons, the context of this governor's debate. As it turned out, we got a new round of ACT scores on Wednesday. And what I found interesting about it was that it's kind of more of the same. Our, our ACT scores for 2018, for the graduates of uh, 2018, yep. virtually the same. Scores are pretty much identical to what we saw in 2017. Really minute changes in a couple of categories, but the overall score, not much different. Again, uh, Idaho comes in, I think it was 19th in the nation, if you really want to do those comparisons. But again, you have to be very careful about those comparisons. Uh, Idaho did come in ahead of the national average and did come in ahead of all of its neighboring states. So again, the same story that we heard uh, uh, discussed in the governor's debate on Monday night. But, but again, uh, Barely a third of the students in, in that graduating class taking the ACT. So got to look at those numbers with a grain of salt. And in fairness, when the SAT numbers come out and we're looking at almost the entire uh, class of students taking the SAT, we're going to be careful to not compare that to a state. And some of our neighboring states are in this category where only the right. elite students, only the Definitely highly motivated college-bound students are taking the SAT. It's just not a fair comparison. Uh, it, it's just not apples to apples. So we'll be careful when we get the ACT scores. But anyway, we've got the ACT scores up. You can look at those and kind of look at it in sort of the the education context, but also the political context. I try to uh, incorporate both. Yeah, good thing to keep the context um in mind. That, that's why we keep you around, Kevin, is so you can point out oh, those kind yeah. of things. <laughs> it's good to have a role. It's good yeah. to have a niche, you know. And we keep you around because nobody else would sit and listen to the live stream of two days of State Board of Education meetings. But but Boy. seriously, they, they committed some news this week. And this is a, an issue we've been kind of waiting to sort of see how it's going to unfold. This whole concept of outcomes-based education funding for higher ed it's a mouthful, but it's a big deal, and they took some action on Thursday, did they not? This is a big deal, and this is a reason why I think higher education could finally become a big part of the 2019 legislative session after being quiet on the higher ed front uh, for several years now. But uh, the State Board of Education made a big move on Thursday, calling for a major shakeup in the way the state funds its colleges and universities. Uh, the state board unanimously voted to waive its existing state funding model 
which really has to do with the number and the type of credits that students are taking. Uh, so getting away from that model, transitioning over perhaps a three-year period to an outcomes-based funding model. And this would be a major change, the likes of which we really haven't seen in 30 years when it comes to how we fund our colleges and universities. But what we're talking about doing is providing incentives to at the end of the day, it's incentives to have graduates, to yeah. get degrees, not just to get enrollment, not just to have kids register for classes and take a full load of credits, but we're incentivizing, with a degree. incentivizing degrees. And so what we're talking about is these weighted multipliers uh, that would be going into the state funding mix uh, that basically would reward schools, colleges, and universities at the four-year level. It would reward them for on-time graduations. That would be graduating within, uh, say, four years for a, a bachelor's degree. It would reward universities for issuing degrees to at-risk students, students who struggle financially with poverty. And also it would reward universities for awarding degrees in what they call these high-impact areas. Mm -hmm. That's the STEM fields, your science, technology, engineering, and math fields, as well as business, uh, healthcare, and education. And so for each of those degrees awarded and each of those types of degrees, um, the colleges and universities would get uh, an additional weighted allocation. They were very careful not to use the word payoff. Uh, they had been using that, it sounded like, in some of their meetings, but they're talking about an allocation uh, or, or simply funding now. But it's a major shift, and it passed the state board unanimously, but there's still uh, some major hurdles to go. The legislature still would need to approve uh, the outcomes-based funding model. And I think that we're going to hear something from especially our community colleges about this one, because what we know about community colleges is, yes, uh, a lot of them do uh, award a lot of associate's degrees, but we also see a lot of students maybe going there for their first year after high mm -hmm. school, knocking some of those gen ed classes out of the way at a lower per credit hour cost, and then moving on to maybe that four-year university to pursue that bachelor's degree. Um, but they, many of them wouldn't have earned an associate's degree right. at their first right. stop at the community college, and so... I wonder what community colleges will have to say about that. There was also yeah. some concern. Uh, these awards are stackable. And so um, let's say I'm a student. Uh, I've graduated high school, and I earn a professional certificate. I earn an associate's degree, and I earn a bachelor's degree. Those awards could be stackable. And so uh, colleges and universities could get incentives three times for me if I got a certificate and associates and a bachelor's. And so there was some concern, Linda Clark acknowledged this, that this new formula could incentivize basically turning our universities into degree mills. And there's a lot of concern about that. What if a four-year university all of a sudden started issuing new superfluous certificates and associate's degrees as students progress towards that bachelor's degree? Maybe that wasn't really what the student was after, but if they've satisfied the credit requirements, that would be one way for the universities to get uh, an extra funding allocation. And, and Kevin Satterley, the new president of Idaho State University, was pretty blunt when they asked him about it. He said, if I ever do that at my university, please fire me, because that's not the goal. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a potential major change. Uh, it comes, where, where does this outcomes-based funding recommendation come from? Well, it comes from the Higher Education Task Force that Governor Otter convened. I believe they issued a dozen recommendations yeah. 
just about a year ago in October 2017. And it passed unanimously there too. All of the recommendations from the Higher Ed Task Force passed unanimously. But I I remember from the discussion back in in September of 17, Alana Rubel, state representative uh, from Boise, Democratic state representative, she voted for it, but she expressed a lot of concerns about this path. And and some of it was, you know, are are, are we going to award kind of cheap, meaningless, right. uh, those may be my words, less than hers, but you, you, the idea, are we going to grant degrees for the sake of granting degrees and hitting a number as opposed to really helping students? There is a whole lot to unravel and a whole lot of implications to consider in, in this kind of a thing. I mean, the idea of incentivizing graduation uh, in at-risk student populations, I mean, they that is definitely a concern at the state level. If you're trying to get to this 60% completion goal, you, you don't get there without uh, getting more students into the system, more students into college and out of college. Uh, you, know, you know, kids from poverty, kids from rural Idaho, you know, Latino students, Native American students. You know, this is a big deal. I, I totally understand that. One of the things that kind of jumped out at me in, in looking at the coverage and, and as we're talking about it, it's one thing to incentivize degrees and uh, you know in grades grade colleges by uh, completion rates, but sometimes that's not always within the control of the institution. I'm yeah. thinking about it's one thing for a student to 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 flunk out of class and you know maybe they didn't get you know placed in the right classes, they didn't get you know the remediation help they needed, maybe they didn't get the, the one-on-one help that they needed to get through their classes and, and persevere. That you know, you can draw a connection. You can say maybe the institution uh, came up short for that student. But there are times that a student, you know, drops out or stops out because of financial reasons. And that really doesn't have a lot to do with the institution. Yeah. I mean, so I don't... Maybe they got married. Maybe they had a child. Maybe they relocated. Maybe they got a new job. I mean, it, we've name, run into this before. Scenario, right? Life happens, mm-hmm. you know. But this would be a major change, kind of on the magnitude of the school funding formula changes we're looking at right now at the K-12 level. I think it's that big of a deal. Uh, We've been talking about the public school funding formula for months. We'll be talking about it again next week. Yeah, we'll be back Um, Thursday. But a good time to be an education reporter in the state of Idaho. Lots going on with K-12, with our public schools. But a ton going on with higher education. We have this outcomes-based funding formula model, uh, the outcomes-based funding model on the table that's been endorsed by the state board. We have historic turnover at our institutions of higher education, two active presidential searches going on, one at Boise State University, one at University of Idaho. There's a new president at Idaho State University, as we mentioned. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think higher education as well could play a major role in the 2019 legislative session. And I think the state board's going to ask for additional funding. Uh, This may be a session that when you talk about the other issues, looking at prisons, looking at roads and highways. Potentially implementation of a Medicaid initiative if it passes. I mean, a a new new governor, new JFAC chairs, uh, may or may not have a new superintendent. This could be a long legislative session with a lot of difficult decisions and a very limited budget environment. Yeah. Uh, this could be a really, really fascinating, divisive legislative session where a lot of compromises might need to be made. So stay tuned, but head, yeah. head over to the homepage, idahoednews.org. I just published something Thursday setting up kind of the significance of this outcomes-based funding model that the state board is looking at 
and I will follow up uh, in the weeks leading up to the legislative session uh, to get more context here, but uh, check out what we have. They've started the ball, ro ball rolling uh, towards a major decision point. Yeah, yeah, and you know we'll watch it through the process. We'll see what the next governor does with this because you know he or she will implement this or propose it or work it into a budget proposal. So we'll see how that uh, plays itself out, and then the whole process begins with JFAC and the Germain committees. There's uh, a lot of steps uh, before this happens and a lot of debate before this happens. Absolutely, there is. Boy, that was a. Uh... That was, was a busy a full, week. Full, full podcast there. Uh, next week's going to be another busy one, too. Uh, we're only about two and a half weeks away from the November 6th general election. Obviously, the governor, state superintendent, every legislative seat, as well as a couple congressional seats are up. So big election uh, in Idaho and a lot for us to do. We should have new SAT numbers next week. We're going to take another look at the school funding formula committee. They meet Thursday morning. We'll be there for that. Yeah, there's just a lot going on here. All right. Uh, I think that got to everything I wanted to cover this week. I appreciate uh, everybody tuning in and kind of indulging us. Uh, there was a lot to get through to this week, but we always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, kind of breaking down this complicated intersection of politics and schools policy. So thanks for coming along for the ride. If you don't already, uh, if you use Twitter, you can follow us at Idaho Ed News for all of our latest news, links to our stories and live tweets the big meetings and debates. So thanks so much for joining us. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.